0: This is Core Conversations episode two, where we will hold conversations about race, equity, and disparity within healthcare and academia. This podcast was created by the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Student Committee at the University of Florida, Doctor of Physical Therapy program. But the opinions are ours and do not represent the opinions of the university. Hello to all the listeners. Welcome to the second episode of Core Conversations. I'll be the host today. My name is Justice Norman. I'm a second year DPT student. I was in the first episode of Core Conversations, which touched on personal perspectives from students in our DPT cohort, and what led us to creating this podcast and having these conversations about social justice. Today, we're going to get the perspective of Dr. Mark Bishop, the program director of the University of Florida on his personal progression and becoming actively anti-racist. So a quick round of applause. So, uh, Dr. Bishop you tell the listeners, like where you're from, a little bit about yourself.
1: Yes, thanks, Justice. Um, so, I grew up in Australia, and I did my physical therapy training in Australia, University of Queensland, and worked in Australia for a couple of years in the hospital system, and then in a sports clinic before I moved to Canada. And I had a great chance in Canada to work for the Calgary Flames organization. Didn't get to touch anybody on the team, but I worked for the organization and we had coverage with Stampeders football and junior double-a hockey and that was an incredible experience. Then I moved to Florida in 1993, September. I uh, had a couple of inpatient jobs at uh, hospitals in Gainesville, Florida and then worked at an outpatient clinic, and decided in 1995 to go back to school and enrolled in the master's program at the University of Florida. That parlayed in 1998 to having an opportunity to teach in the PT program, which was a bachelor's program at that particular time. And then in 1999, went back to do my PhD graduated in 2002 and have been full-time faculty at UF since that time. So you have had an opportunity to see it evolve from the bachelor's program to the master's program to the doctor of physical therapy program.
0: Wow, so it's been like 20 years in this program? Uh, Yes, sir. (laughs) yes. (laughs) I was checking my math. So I believe you became the director last year, right? Or maybe 2019? Uh, December 2019, yes, sir. Okay. So um, before we get into the discussion, uh, the DEI committee thought it would be necessary to have these conversations about social injustices amongst ourselves as students, but also with our faculty and program leaders. So during the first episode, the students of the DEI committee explained what brought us here today. The DEI committee invited Dr. Bishop to this episode of the podcast, and which he was kind enough to have accepted. So Dr. Bishop, I'm kinda gonna ask you the same questions that we answered. Why do you feel it's important to be here today discussing social justice?
1: I can tell you why I think it's important personally for me first. Um, I think that, I think everyone who's listening is probably aware that what happened in 2020 was not the first time that something like that happened to a young black man in America. And what motivated me was the fact that it has happened multiple times. I have heard about it multiple times, condemned it personally multiple times, but haven't acted. And I'm sure we'll get into more details later, but this was the the first time that uh, I really acted to educate myself a lot more about being what, what the difference be, between being anti-racist and not racist was, what being an ally was, concepts that I had, had never read deeply about and apparently was pretty confused about by considering a lot of them to be synonyms when in fact they were very, very different. Can you tell me a little bit about what do you think it means to be
0: anti-racist?
1: So from what I understand now, if I'm going to be anti-racist, that means I have to actively fight racism. If I see something that I think is racist or prejudice, I need to say something about it or act to change that. And that is not, that is not what I had been doing. I had been comforting myself to say, well, I'm, I'm not racist. I think, uh, I don't know if this is supposed to happen later, Justice, but one of, the, one of the things that I did in the last summer was take some recommendations finally to read books like White Fragility. And so we wanna talk about race, which were very eye-opening for me personally. So I grew up in an area of Australia that uh, has a lot of people from the Pacific Islands, Thursday Islands, Torres Strait, Uh, local Aboriginal people, Fijians, Coral Sea Islanders, and had been convincing myself that because I grew up there, I'm not racist. My sister's married to a Fijian man, and my uh, brother's partner, her parents are from Papua New Guinea, so how could I be a racist because, you know, I have people from the islands in my family. So I'm not prejudiced, but I'm part of a racist system, and I wasn't being anti-racist because I was telling myself I was doing okay because I was not acting in a racist manner. And for me, that's my understanding of the process right now.
0: Yeah, now everybody kind of has like their own personal journey of finding out what it means to be, not what it means to be racist, but just to be in this, this system. Everybody's journey is different. So thank you for sharing that. So I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. So. Early 2020 uh, was a big year for social justice, like you said. Personally, I felt like there was a lot of silence which prompted my letter that we talked about in the first episode. Um, Can you reflect on times before I was in the program and how these issues were addressed? So not necessarily about the program, but just in the workplace
1: in general. So what I remember is when there was one of these frequent events, there would be outrage, there would be some action, the college would make a change, the university would make a change. And then, I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention, I think at least for me, I'd see the changes happen, say good and move on. And by changes, I mean, institution of policy or, the development of an initiative on campus or the promotion of an initiative. And I would say good and go back to whatever I was doing. And so what I recall and and what I sort of think is that every time something happened, there would be some action. And I think the difference in 2020 from my perspective is that there was again action, but it was action taken by a lot of people in the same direction, if that makes sense. So there's always been initiatives on campus. There's always been initiatives in the college, but I personally haven't been involved in that. I've been doing my own stuff. I haven't been involved in the workplace initiatives. And I suspect, but don't know for sure that maybe that was the case for other people. Because when your letter came, I got emails saying, yeah, we need to do something, we need to do something. But everyone had been thinking that in isolation. And I kind of feel like maybe it was the first time that I had spoken to other people in the department and college about, yes, there needs to be action in a more uniform and active way. than what had happened in the past, if that makes sense. So there'd always been things happening. There'd always been things going on, but I personally hadn't promoted them. I hadn't been involved. I didn't know people who were involved. I was just happy to say, yes, they're doing something. And I think this time we just had an opportunity for everyone to talk more about it together. And potentially that explained a little bit more of the concerted response from the workplace. It's just an opinion, but just kind of what I think. Yeah, for sure. I'm gonna think about that question too. So
0: in my time, just being a student in my undergrad, I remember there was was a few big things that happened. I honestly, I can't even think of the exact tragedy or political issue that happened. I remember when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling, that was really big in my area and that had a large impact on my life and that's when I kind of started expressing my feelings about these issues publicly and I remember like the institutions I was a part of so like the universe at the university level and things like that there were some initiatives being started but it was still different than what we saw in 2020 personally like looking back on it I feel like it was a lot of symbolic victories like there were a lot of things that seem to be encouraging or promoting like change and things like that. But honestly, I never saw anything really come to fruition from that. Maybe that's just because I didn't do my research and really see like what happened after I left. But so 2020 was, it was also, it seemed different to me as well. It was, this kind of leads me to the next question. So like the DEI committee, we kind of had this conversation and at least in, our program, we felt as though the letter acted like as a catalyst and initiating like social um, justice groups that we have in the program. Would you agree with that in a
1: way? Yes, I, I think that the letter got people to talk to each other about something that was not being discussed as a group. That I, I really, I, I do think that. I think that uh, an example of what you're talking about. Uh, so the Trayvon Martin shooting in, happened in Florida. Mm. There was lots of outrage and calls for change and social justice at that time. But that was all for me outside of work. That was not, that was not a UF thing. That was not a program thing. That was, that was outside, that was social. And didn't involve the workplace. And potentially, what I think happened here with your letter is because multiple people got it, and multiple people talked to each other about it. That, that that was the catalyst to get us talking to each other about. So, what are we going to do about it as a group, instead of what am I going to do about it as me, Mark Bishop, personally? I think that maybe that's the the difference is saying, what can we do about this as a group instead of individuals? Yeah. So that's actually going to lead us into like our next question. But
0: before we get there, can we just possibly talk about what followed the letter? How do you think the, the letter was received? And then like, if anything was initiated after the letter, do you think that there were positive things that came after that?
1: I do. And I can't, talk for other people or anything like that. But I can tell you that my observation for me is that the people to whom I was talking were saying, well, we need to do something. What can we do as a group? How can we do stuff to make some difference? And there was groups of people talking about recruiting and admissions and other people talking about, well, we need to do this, or oh, we could have a book club or we could educate ourselves. And and so all those conversations were happening amongst the, the group of people. And then um, the department level. So that was in the PT program, but it was in the PhD program. It was in some other sort of things. And so the PhD program had some people acting and then as a department, the decision was made to say, well, let's bring all this together. Let's bring all this together and see if we can work out some areas that would be priorities where we feel like we can and get some things changed, work on initiating some, some sustainable activities rather than having the multiple groups all going in similar directions, but not in a concerted way. So there was a, a group formed that included students, staff and faculty that uh, got together to work out some sort of broad areas of focus and then some work groups were formed around each of those areas of focus and I think they've met to make recommendations to our department chair who is going to help us sort out where the priorities will lie over the next months to try and uh, make some sustainable change not just change but sustainable change that will continue to occur
0: thank you for that so we kind of already touched on it in the past before this most recent social justice movement how did you navigate social justice issues in your personal life versus your professional life so like do you feel like you navigated them differently in the past
1: oh i do okay i do and uh, I think, within reflection, that I navigated them reasonably poorly. Like I said, I was happy to say, I'm not racist. My kids don't see colour. And I have come to learn that those two statements are hallmarks of white fragility and privilege because I have the opportunity to say I don't see colour in my life because of my background and. My privilege as a white person in the US or generally in the West, let's say, because it's broader than just the US. And so I think personally, you know, doing some things where you, I, not you, sorry, I donate to a, a cause like the Black on Black Task Force in Gainesville or helping Habitat for Humanity to build a house in East Gainesville and say, I'm making making great strides in social change and justice by doing these things. And uh, so that was my personal sort of contributions. And then uh, at work doing things like paying attention to my language or my interactions with people and saying that was enough. And I do, I do recognize uh, after doing quite a bit of reading about it, that, that it was exactly uh, the silence you were talking about. I think um, D'Angelo, for example, was calling it the silence of inaction and by being silent, you know, I'm taking an action, uh, which was not something I'd ever considered very deeply before. But, uh, you know, when you when I start to think about these sort of things, I say, okay, all right, by choosing not to act, then there's nothing about being an ally in that, and there's nothing about being anti-racist in that. I was choosing not to act or take a stand beyond what I was talking about, which probably didn't create very much change. Yeah, and, and for me, looking back on it,
0: it's hard for, well, we have different experiences. And I think I think what you said is correct. I might not necessarily have that, that privilege that you were talking about to be able to like separate the two. Whether it's my personal life or my professional life, these issues are constantly around me and affecting me, um, whether I whether I notice it or not. So whether that's me experiencing microaggressions in the workplace or me seeing, you know. Unarmed black people murdered on the TV screen. So for me at least, I was just when I wrote the letter, I was, I was just kind of shocked that we could continue living, living our daily lives as though nothing was happening. But you already kind of explained that process of um and that journey that at least you've you've taken. So can you tell me how you like navigated differently now? I know it's a journey and everything like that but have you been able to like you said that you you've read you've read a few books have you been able to like actively do anything differently
1: it's i can tell you the immediate steps that i have taken um the first thing is to think about i need to think about microaggressions and particularly microaggressions in language that I use when I'm presenting or writing or teaching and having discussions with uh, my, my colleagues about, is this a microaggression? I am embarrassed to say sometimes I don't recognize that that is a, something that I have traditionally said, I've never thought about wait, that could be perceived as a microaggression and not just for black Americans, but for women or other groups that I need to really focus on that and go through. And this year, for example, going through my slides for class, it's not exactly related, but you know, to eliminate the word normal from all my language and put typical or average to eliminate the word underrepresented and reframe that to the other group is overrepresented. Just little things that I had never really thought deeply about, and just going through to to see where where am I doing that, where where am I doing that all the time, and so that that's been an immediate one. The other one is. Paying more attention to recruiting events. I know this is a very small thing, but just to make sure that I show up at recruiting events to be able to talk to people about PT and about our PT program, those type of things, instead of you know not showing up. And so those would be two very small acts that uh, I have tried to make consistent in the recent months. I don't know if those are good examples or not. Uh, I think those are are great examples.
0: I I definitely do. I think people will be be able to understand that it's a process, it's a journey, and it's not easy, and a lot of times you don't even think about it. It takes a lot of reflection to be able to go back and look at some things that you might not have done properly or the way that you might have liked to in the future. So, um, what do you think would be fair expectations for future clinicians, or you know, student physical therapists that are about to go on their, their rotations, as they start to work in clinics concerning social injustices they may encounter or witness? The way I imagine this question, it's imagine somebody's going into a clinic and they may notice something that they think might be racist or prejudiced in some way. Like, how would you? What do you think is a fair expectation of? A future clinician
1: about how to handle that or
0: yeah how would you that
1: yeah yes good question i'll tell you tell you the perfect mike bishop's perfect world in mike bishop's perfect world you could be direct and candid and say can you not speak that way please stop doing that. And that would not create an offence that you could say that to me, and I say, stop what? And you could say, what you just did, I found that offensive, I think it was racist, please stop doing it. And I'd say, really? Sorry about that, I will stop doing it. But I know that's probably not going to be the situation for personal relationships, and I think that the challenge For students is going to be navigating some of the hierarchy at the clinics, but I would, I personally, would hope that students could talk to a clinical instructor or to their faculty of record to get support. That if they were, if a student was to say, "Can you please stop using that language?", that that would be an acceptable behaviour. I think the, the question also has some other layers because you talked about clinical practice and those type of things. I, I, my thought would be that if people can take some time to reflect, not everybody's going to agree with what I think about this. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know that some people are going to come back and say, there's nothing wrong with not being racist. And I would say, well, that, now I know that's different from being anti-racist, that if the whole system is based on, as the social theory would suggest, based on prejudicial background, then the whole system has a racist process, then we need to change the whole system, and it's just not good enough to be not racist. I'd encourage people, if they haven't thought about that, to think about that. I know for me personally, reading those, those books gave me a lot of opportunity to reflect about how I kind of viewed things and what I could do to view things differently. Um, and then having conversations about some of the concept in the, those books with uh, friends of mine who were people of are people of color or different uh, gender backgrounds, just to kind of get their perspectives and say, is this correct? And have uh, people who are willing help me navigate those. I understand that one of the the challenges is to be a person of color or someone from a diverse background and having to educate someone like me over and over and over, Uh, but my experience was actually raising that question and having the opportunity for a dialogue was a positive thing, certainly for me and the people to whom I was talking about saying that uh, they appreciated that I'd taken the time to actually do some reading, think about some things first before I just walked up and say, so tell me what white privilege is.
0: Yeah, I honestly think that's the best way to do that process to definitely do your your own research to reflect personally and then to eventually have these conversations with whoever you feel like might can give you some more insight so do you think that this is like only a personal obligation or do you think that this is like also a professional obligation
1: i would i would say it's a professional obligation as a as a profession my opinion is physical therapists could be more active in helping change some of the situations. We've talked for a long time about social determinants of health. But we haven't really made much change to practice and obviously to change practice, we have to change law and we have to change all these type of things, but they won't change if we don't try to change them and I think that's the difference is that If people are willing to actually take the steps to do the work to change these type of things, I think that's a professional obligation. We can make all the policies we like, but policy is not gonna change any sort of systemic system stuff. So I think that to change the system, we're gonna have to be more active with advocacy and other type of things because we do practice by regulation so those, some of those things we will need to, to look at if we're actually gonna make longer term changes, in my opinion.
0: Well, Dr. Bishop, thank you for that. I think that's extremely important to have these conversations in the workplace, in your institution, in your university, just because it's almost a, it's just a place where you can just acknowledge and reflect and you know get some more insight. And honestly, that's, I think that's the foundation. I think that a lot of the programs and organizations and groups that are created need to have these conversations first in order to try to change policies and make good changes, sustainable changes, like you were talking about earlier. What do you think is the biggest takeaway that you will want listeners to reflect on after listening to this episode?
1: It's a little uh, metacognitive, but uh, I would ask the people to reflect about reflecting. Um, If people haven't done some reading or read around the topic, watch things about the topic. And I encourage folks to really spend some time with that. It took uh, us, you know, I want to say a solid week of thinking or two weeks of thinking to to kind of digest some of these new concepts new to me concepts new to me and then to reflect about how they affected what i was doing in my personal and professional life so if people haven't had that opportunity to do so i'd really encourage folks to um dig in to some of that material to just think about how they are approaching social justice
0: okay thank you want to encourage people that having these conversations is okay in the in your personal life as well as your professional life this is my opinion but i think that it's necessary and silence is also a statement so having these conversations in your personal life and your professional life is definitely necessary And I just wanna encourage everybody to um, participate if they can. Dr. Bishop, thank you for coming to this episode. I definitely learned a lot. I appreciate you giving us a little insight into your mind and the way you process and the way you went through uh, your journey with some of these issues. I think a lot of people will learn from the things that you've said today. So for that, I just wanna give you one more thank you. One more applause for Dr. Bishop. So the true last question we ask at the end of every episode, Dr. Bishop, what's good?
1: What's good? The beach, always good. But I think um, more broadly, what's good is that our program is still open that we came through the peak of COVID, we came through the peak of social unrest and that we're still moving forward. We're advancing people are moving through the program. Uh, we didn't have to close down and that we have some new goals to kind of act together to help address social injustice at the beach too always good.
0: Both of those things are good. Uh, for me, what's good? Honestly, the weather's nice in Florida. Uh, PA had a rough winter. I'm from uh, Pennsylvania. They had a rough winter, and I can't say that I miss it, uh, so I really enjoyed this Florida weather, so that's what's good with me. <laughs> Very good. I, along with the DEI committee, would like to thank Dr. Bishop for joining us and providing his perspectives on this episode. These are not necessarily easy conversations to have, but everyone involved finds them extremely important. Thank you to the listeners of the first two episodes. We appreciate your feedback. Future episodes will continue to have these conversations with students, faculty, and other clinicians. The two books Dr. Bishop referenced in this episode was White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. and So You Want to Talk About Race with Joma Aluo. If you're interested in buying and reading these, we've linked an article in the description of this episode to help you find black-owned bookstores in your state. Today I was your host, Justice Norman, production manager Casey Jackson, Marketing and Department Liaison Ali Marcy and Brianne Stefan, Speaker Coordination, um, Recruitment Chairs, that would be Monique DeVoe and Rachel Castor, research coordinators, Haley Hasty and Cortland Rains, and music producer DJ Ricky D.